Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 22, uh, much of which we've sung already. Uh, what Spurgeon said is, beyond all others, the psalm of the cross. He calls it the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the vial of his last tears, and memorial of his expiring joys. It says that we should read this psalm reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet, for if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. Psalm 22, to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted And you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, for there is no one to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you, you who fear the Lord. Praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. 
let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship and those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It'll be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. And then we'll read that in connection with Matthew 27, verses 32 to 50. That psalm is alluded to in verse 35, verse 39, in verse Uh, 43, and again in verse 46, uh, confirming Spurgeon's contention that this is beyond all others, the psalm of the cross. Matthew 27, again, our reading at verse 32. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there and They put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking With the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will save him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Congregation, about a year ago, I uh, preached a sermon from Matthew's gospel where we uh, made the point that the experience of King David is uh, lived out in the life of Jesus. 
Some of you boys and girls might recall, we compared the relationship between David and David's son to a scene from The Lion King where Simba is referred to as Mufasa's boy. And it says, no, Mufasa has been dead a long time. To which Rafiki, the eccentric mandrill, says, no, he's alive. I'll show you. And then takes Simba on this wild chase through the woods, uh, leading him eventually to a small pond where he tells him to look in the water. Simba does. Sees his reflection and says, that's not my father, that's just my reflection. But Rafiki tells him to look harder and says, you see... He lives in you. He wants him to see his father in his own reflection. And Matthew does something like that all throughout his gospel. Now, one New Testament theologian says in a similar way, Matthew takes his readers on a journey throughout Jesus' life, yet all the while we are looking at this figure who looks like David. Matthew tells his readers, in essence, This is David's boy. David's life is woven into the garments of Jesus' life. And you you recall from Matthew's gospel, Matthew does this through plot, geography, cities, numbers, Old Testament quotations, and subtle allusions. Through David's life, we understand something of Jesus' life. And through Jesus' life, we see David's fulfilled. Christ is a Messiah patterned after David. That's one of the things that we see so clearly in Matthew 27 as we we hold up Matthew 27 next to Psalm 22. That's what I'd like to do this uh, Good Friday is consider the 22nd Psalm, at least the first 21 verses of it, and, and see how in this Psalm is a shadow of Good Friday. How the suffering of King David and the king's cry of God-forsakenness in Psalm 22.1 is fulfilled in Jesus. And so we'll look at the uh, suffering of David first and then the suffering of David's son. Just two points this morning. The suffering of David and the suffering of David's son as we see the comfort of the cross for all who have ever felt forsaken by God as we see the comfort of the cross for all who experience separation from God because of sin and because of their sin are forsaken. The comfort of the cross for sinners and sufferers like you and I. As you look at the suffering of David first, then notice first this feeling of divine desertion. It begins with with groaning. The same kind of groaning we sang up from Psalm 88. Here he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, I cry to you in the daytime, but you do not hear. I continue my crying in the nighttime and am not silent. But the implication is that God is. David says he is not silent, but the implication is that God is. That David's incessant groaning both night and day is met with divine silence. 
which is made all the worse then as it is contrasted. Notice that word but in verse 3. It's contrasted with the experience of his fathers who trusted. In other words, they did the same thing that David is doing right now as he's saying, my God. It's a, a, a confession of his hope in God. They did the same thing. They trusted just as he is doing now and they were delivered. He speaks of of his fathers who cried to God and were delivered. They trusted and were not ashamed. Three times we're told in verses 3 and 4 that they trusted, they trusted, they trusted, and they were not ashamed. But David, in verses 6 to 8, is. He says he's like a worm and not a man. Reproach of men and despised by the people. They were not ashamed, but as he is experiencing this reproach and derision, despised by the people, he is very much ashamed. Everyone who sees him ridicules him. It says that they shoot out the lip at him. They mock him. They wag their heads at him and say, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he supposedly delights in him. In the first five verses, David's groaning is met with silence. In contrast, the experience of the fathers throughout the whole history of Israel. Now, in verses 6 to 11, David speaks of the reproach and derision that he is the object of from those who watch him suffer. He contrasts the experience of God not intervening and vindicating him with the experience that he has known all the way since childbirth when God took him from his mother's womb and then nourished him at his mother's breast. Notice this continued contrast. He says, you have been my God from my mother's womb. You have made me to trust you while I was nursing on my mother's breast, but now you're far from me. Trouble is near, but there's no one to help. David feels this sneaking suspicion of divine desertion. He feels this sense that the God who has forever been his God has abandoned him. As men like Saul seek his life, as the crowds jeer at him, as night and day he prays, but here's no answer. There is this uh, incongruity between David's experience as a child and his experience now of apparent divine desertion. An incongruity between what he knows of God's care for his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the congregation in the wilderness, and his experience of seeming abandonment. So he cries out to God and bemoans this lonely exile. But then notice he doesn't only speak of divine desertion. In those first 11 verses, he speaks also of human victimization. Those are the the words of Sinclair Ferguson. Verses 1 to 11 show us divine desertion. In other words, his, his suffering in relation to God. And then verses 12 to 18 show us human victimization, his suffering in relation to men where he speaks in verses 12 and 13, and and again in verse 16 of his enemies with animal-like imagery. Bulls of Bashan speaks of roaring and raging lions, uh, dogs who have surrounded him. 
Boys and girls, maybe you can picture a a rodeo where a young matador is all alone with a a raging bull charging at him. Or you can picture a lion in the games at the Colosseum raging and roaring at one of the Christians left undefended. This is the kind of imagery that Psalm 22 evokes. You might think of, of slave memoirs that speak of dogs chasing after runaways, trained to track them down, spring upon them, and maul them. It's this type of animal imagery that David uses to describe the way his enemies seek to kill him. And you notice each of these are in the plural. He says, many bulls, strong bulls, they have encircled him. The dogs of verse 16 are spoken of as a congregation who have enclosed him. This animal-like imagery makes us shudder, as it did David. In fact, each reference to the beasts, the animals who sought to kill him, is followed by a description of death's nearness. He speaks of being poured out like water, verse 14, coming to his ends. Says that all of his bones are out of joint, his heart has melted within him, he's ready to give up his spirit. Verse 15, it says that his strength is dried up like a potsherd. His tongue clings to his jaws or to the roof of his mouth. You picture a, a dry mouth, weary of thirst. And it says he's brought down to the dust of death. David is speaking here of a near-death experience. In fact, he speaks of it as if he has died. You see the same thing in in verses 17 and 18, where after they have pierced his hands and his feet and stripped him, though his bones remain intact like the paschal lamb of Exodus 12, he is the victim of death. And then David cries out again in verses 19 to 21 with a threefold cry for God to intervene and help him. To be not far off, but to be his strength and hasten to help him, to deliver him from the sword and his precious life from the power of the dog, to save him from the lion's mouth and from the horns of wild oxen. You can't help but think as you read this that David is speaking beyond his, himself. That that David is speaking beyond his own experience, that no instance in David's life quite lived up to this description, but he describes in hyperbolic form, as Calvin said, all the persecution he'd experienced throughout his life and does so typologically in a way that points to another, to one who would be totally alone despised by all, encircled by savage animals, pierced in his hands and feet, stripped, naked, slain like a Passover lamb. Exodus twelve forty six. none of its bones shall be broken, brought down even to the dust of death. We know this didn't happen to David because he's writing this as one who is very much alive. You see how what David describes goes beyond any experience of his own. How what David describes goes beyond even the entirety of all his suffering as he never faced anything so final or so total as what is described in this psalm. But he speaks beyond himself. As Dale Ralph Davis explains, to understand this psalm, we must distinguish between David's. 
There is, to be sure, the historical David who doubtless speaks in this psalm, describes much of his own suffering. But David, we must remember, was a man and king in covenant with God, 2 Samuel 7. And God had promised to establish his royal line in an everlasting kingdom. We might say, as we read 2 Samuel 7, as we read Psalm 89, there would be a super David to come. And it's in that sense that we are to understand this psalm. David speaks not only as the historical David, but dynastic David. The covenant representative who can depict his coming descendant in terms of his own suffering, and yet a suffering that goes beyond the bounds of what he himself endured. In the same way that Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, David in the Psalms, when speaking of himself spoke as a prophet concerning Christ, David speaks out of his suffering and yet beyond his suffering into the suffering of another. David is here speaking prophetically. That's what Matthew 27 tells us. He speaks of the psalmist as one of the prophets. David is speaking here prophetically of a pattern that would be fulfilled in the life of his son. That's why so much of what we read in this psalm sounds like what we read in Matthew 27. To return to that Lion King analogy, it's as if Christ, as he cried on the cross in Matthew 27, could look down at the puddle of tears beneath him and see in it not just his own reflection, but that of his father David's whose pattern of innocent suffering and apparent God-forsakenness would be fulfilled in his descendant who relives each line of this psalm. So I want you to look with me then at the suffering of David's son. Suffering of David's son. We can start with the observation, the obvious observation that verse one of this psalm, the very first line in it is, Quoted by Jesus on the cross, Dr. Vischer drew attention to this last week, Jesus' cry of God-forsakenness, Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who did not just feel as if he had been forsaken by God, as was the case with David, but the wonder of the cross is that he was. As we sometimes sing on Good Friday or other times throughout the year from, uh, from him, I think 351, the father turned his face away. And Christ entered into darkness. The darkness of a psalm like Psalm 88, where it says that darkness is my only friend. He entered into the groaning of verse 1 that is met with silence, with God being far from helping him who even though he had helped his fathers in the wilderness, even though he had delivered Israel when they cried to him, and Abraham and the patriarchs when they called out to him, would not deliver the true Israel and the true seed of Abraham in his hour of greatest need, but made him suffer the wrath of God for the sins of the world and feel on the cross the hellish anguish that question answer 44 of our catechism speaks of when it says that Christ suffered unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul. Becoming that worm of Psalm 22.6, a reproach of men despised by the people who was hated 
mocked and ridiculed by the very ones whose lives he upheld in that moment. He was hated, mocked, and ridiculed by the Roman soldiers, by the thieves on the cross, by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. All of the characters in Matthew's crucifixion narrative make up that band of men in Psalm 22 who shoot out the lip and wag their head at the Davidic king. In fact, Matthew 27, 39 even uses that exact language in the ESV. They wag their heads at him. An allusion to Psalm 22. They take their cue from Psalm 22, 8, almost verbatim. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him, they say, in verse 43. It's as if they're reading a script. And so they pierce his hands and feet, fulfilling verse 16. They divide his garments among them, casting lots for them, fulfilling verse 18. And as we read these two passages together, we're left to wonder whether anyone in the crowd that day, whether any of the passers-by or even any of the chief priests, scribes, and elders who said those very words from Psalm 22 might have, have thought to themselves that this sounds a bit familiar as they heard the mocking and derision, as they saw the naked son of David hanging with pierced hands and feet, his mouth dry with thirst, his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth as they heard the people take Psalm 22.8 on their lips unwittingly and saw the soldiers casting lots for his clothing. Did anyone think this sounded familiar? As if they were reading the script. And Christ signaled just what that script was as he then cried out those words of Psalm 22.1. Or as he said later on in in, uh, the crucifixion narrative, in John's crucifixion narrative, it is finished. Evoking those final words of the psalm, he has done it. Christ was fulfilling a pattern. Christ was fulfilling a pattern of the innocent Davidic sufferer, the suffering king scorned by the very ones he came to save, victimized by men, and apparently deserted by God. We could say David spoke beyond himself of the Christ to come when he used that hyperbolic prophetic language in Psalm 22, and then Christ comes along knowing that he was the one who had come from David's line to fulfill that pattern of suffering unto glory, knowing that he was the one in whom his father David's experience would be fulfilled, takes the words of David on his lips and enters into the darkness of divine desertion and human victimization, becoming the paschal lamb whose bones would not be broken, whose hands and feet would be pierced, who was brought down even to the dust of death, so that David's cry of verse 1 might have an answer in his son. The answer to David's cry was Good Friday. God had not forsaken David. In fact, he would send his son to pay for his greatest need. The answer to David's cry was the suffering of his son on Good Friday. Bonhoeffer said there is no theoretical answer to these suffering psalms, these psalms of lament. The only real answer is Christ. 
They pray concerning the one who took upon himself our diseases and bore our infirmities. They proclaim Christ to be our only help in suffering, for in him God is with us. Not only is Christ the goal of our prayer, but he himself accompanies us in our prayer. He who has suffered every want and has brought it before God has prayed for our sake in God's name. For our sake, he cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now we know that there is no longer any suffering on earth in which Christ will not be with us. Christ's cry of God forsaken us is the answer to the pain and suffering that we experience in this world. The suffering that we experience this side of the curse. His cry of God forsaken us assures us, again to quote question answer 44, during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross but also earlier has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. That's what we see in this psalm of the cross. Man's greatest need provided. Man's greatest problem solved, the problem of the hellish anguish and torment we deserve, the problem of that separation from God, verse 1, occasioned by sin entering into this world, the problem of that dust of death in verse 15 to which we are first introduced in Genesis 3. To dust, from dust you have come and to dust you shall return. The problem of human suffering that results from it. From human conception and birth, verse 9, to the death of verse 15, this life, our catechism tells us, is a veil of tears. Where psalms like this ring true in some of our experience. Where we have need of a songbook in which about a third of it is lament. In this life where we experience this kind of suffering, this psalm gives us assurance that not only does Christ enter into death itself to solve the problem that occasioned such suffering, but also enters into it in such a way that we may know we are never alone in our suffering. The fact that this suffering of which Psalm 22 speaks goes beyond even the deepest sufferings of that humiliated King David. That exiled King David, who spent so much time on the run from King Saul, who sought to kill him, even his own son Absalom. The fact that this suffering of which Psalm 22 speaks goes beyond even the deepest suffering of David, a man who knew suffering, assures us likewise that there is not one note in our suffering humanity that does not sound a sympathetic chord in Christ's exalted humanity. This psalm shows us that our suffering Savior, as the author of Hebrews says, is not untouched by the feeling of our infirmities. But he knows what it's like to be ridiculed. He knows what it's like to be stripped naked and mocked. He knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be surrounded by enemies who hate him and want to destroy him, who laugh at him while doing so, mock him. This psalm, in showing us the deepest point of Christ's suffering, shows us our sympathetic high priest. 
who not only died for our sins, but ever lives to intercede and knows what you feel. Even when you feel forsaken by God for a time, as this psalm shows us God's children may. He knows what you feel. He has felt it more deeply and more acutely than you could ever imagine. It shows us it's possible, as J.C. Ryle once said, to feel as if forsaken by the Father and yet be at the same time the Father's beloved Son. As it was with the great head of the church, so it may be in a modified sense with his members. They too, though chosen and beloved of the Father, may sometimes feel his face turned away. Sometimes from illness of body, sometimes from peculiar affliction, sometimes from carelessness of walk, sometimes from God's sovereign will to draw them nearer to himself, may be constrained to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this psalm teaches us in those moments, he still loves us. And has shown us that in the greatest way by sending his son to fulfill this script for us as the suffering son of David, forsaken by God that we might never be. Feeling the full weight of his wrath that we might not have to, wounded that we might be healed, ridiculed that we might be honored, stripped that we might be clothed in robes of righteousness, thirsty that we might be satisfied, not answered so that we might be brought down to the dust of death so that we might be lifted up. This psalm shows us the suffering of David's son. It shows us the fulfillment of a pattern that was begun in David and shows us how God, in fulfilling that pattern through the death of his son, accounts for our greatest need and for every lesser need. He pays for our sin. One day will take away our suffering forever because of Christ's death and until then shows us that even in those moments where we feel forsaken, we are loved by the Father because of his Son. On Sunday, we'll consider the rest of this psalm, verses 22 to 31, but for now, I want you to see the love of the Father in turning away his face from his Son. The love of the Son in enduring hell for your sake and the love of the Spirit in equipping Christ for such a work for you. That's what we see in this psalm, the love of the triune God for sinners and sufferers like you and I to enter into the suffering occasioned by sin for your sake and mine so that you and I might never be forsaken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm, how it speaks so clearly of Christ, how David spoke out of his own experience of his son. So that as we read it, we might see a pattern that is fulfilled in Jesus and again be in awe of the way in which you have woven together every page of your words that it speaks of Christ. Lord, we thank you for how he was forsaken on the cross that we might never be, how David's experience of seeming abandonment was fulfilled and superseded in Christ, and how, because it was, we might know in our suffering that we have a sympathetic high priest. 
And during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, be assured that Christ our Lord suffered unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross to deliver us from hellish anguish and torment. That for those who trust in Christ, though this life may contain seasons of suffering and trial, we can know as we've placed our hope in Jesus that that hellish anguish and torment we deserve has been paid for and removed by your Son. Lord, we pray that every one of us would leave here this day assured of your great love in Christ who entered into deepest depths for us and that any here who who have come here this day not assured of that great love would by your spirit have their eyes opened to see both the agony and the glory of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.